0: Fourth Estate presents The Christmas Chronicles, a podcast from me, Nigel Slater. In this series, you'll be joining me on a crisp walk through midwinter in its cold, glistening splendor, all the way up to Christmas Day. Along the path, there'll be recipes for some of your festive favorites, and some new ideas too, to excite your palate in the cold months. You'll be hearing some selected extracts from my audio book, *The Christmas Chronicles*, notes, stories, and a hundred essential recipes for midwinter, as well as some new content that we've recorded here at my home in North London. In this episode, we'll find ourselves staring at the winter sky, the blazing clarity of the stars, and settle in the gentleness of its glow. We'll make a wreath put together some ever-useful terrines and pair our cheeses with the perfect wine. There's also a word of praise for the much-maligned drink of the season, a simple spiced mulled wine. 20th of December, the winter light, stars and shadows. The winter sky has a clarity and gentleness that I find more pleasing than the harsh screaming colours of summer. Softer tones, those clean arctic blues, the whisper soft greys and pin sharp paper whites are the skies I want to live under. The night sky is clearer in cold weather too, the stars infinitely more visible. During the months of December, January and February, we are no longer facing directly into the heart of the Milky Way, whose brightness has the effect of making our view of the stars hazy and blurred. In winter, with the planet facing the galaxy at a different angle, we see fewer stars, which is why they seem clearer on a cold, frosty night. A clear case of less is more. Standing in the garden, even in London it is easier to read the sky on a frosty night. Shadows are more interesting in winter, too. More fuel for the imagination. As the earth tilts away from the sun, the shadows become longer. This is why, perhaps, the walk home is more scary on a winter's night. Because generally, shadows are seen as ghostly, eerie, even sinister. That said... It is true that most horror films and ghost stories are set on winter nights. If there's a summer ghost story, it has escaped my attention. Where long shadows lend a suitably mysterious, spine-tingling atmosphere. I see them differently. Thinking of shadows mostly as benign and fascinating. I often move lamps, furniture and plants in order to get a clearer, longer, more intriguing shadow. 21st of December. A wreath for the front door. The wreath is a symbol of welcome. America and Scandinavia have a long tradition of tying a ring of evergreens to the door, but the habit has only recently become popular here. Indeed, I walk down streets in London where there is barely a front door unadorned. Wreaths of holly and red ribbons, wreaths of mistletoe, wreaths of Douglas fir and rosemary... Some are clearly the handiwork of professionals. Others rely on the charm of amateurism. I spot one finished with beech leaves and copper and green pheasant feathers in a way that lets everyone know the owners have a second home. I'm uncomfortable with the idea of buying a ready-made wreath, but have been less than happy with my own attempts. Even bending the wire coat hanger, the sort that comes with the dry cleaning, into a perfect circle was beyond me. I've come to a deal with myself. I buy a simple ring of holly, Douglas fir, or fir cones, then put my own signature on it, a cop-out, but the sort I can live with. The ring stays solid on its woven willow base, and it is a delight rather than a chore to personalise it. My base came from the greengrocer, a plain ring of Nordman fir. I pick browning hydrangea heads from the garden, leaving plenty in place for the birds You like swinging on them, and tuck them into the thicket of woven willow. Then in go the bay leaves, the sprigs of rosemary, dried beech leaves, and some lichen-covered twigs and florist's moss. My fir cones come attached to their own twiggy branches, but had they not, I might have resorted to a spot of garden wire to secure them. I'm not sure I would trust myself let loose with a glue gun. Blackberries, rather than blackberries... The sort you find on laurel bushes and viburnums usually work here well, but I can't always find them. We can get extravagant. Dried oranges spiked with cloves, cinnamon sticks and curls of cassia bark, sprigs of dried herbs and poppy heads look splendidly archaic. I find the smell of dried oranges and cloves a bit musty in an auntie's wardrobe kind of a way, but it appeals to others. The garland would include rose hips, deep red hawthorn berries, and white snowberries. Avoid shiny laurels. The most charming wreath, the one I was happiest with, was the one I bought from Fern Vero, when they had their now much-missed Bermondsey Market stall. It gave the impression of having been made by elves. Jane Scotter's tangle of twigs, honesty, old man's beard, moss and berries, was everything I wanted my wreath to be. It was admired by many. Others whose taste probably ran to purple baubles, seemed less than impressed by its elfin magic. I have a simpler version on the kitchen door, a circle of woven hazel twigs with cobnuts in their shell. I insist it has a pagan charm. The early examples of wreaths were for the most part made up of evergreens, ivy and laurel, but often wheat too. They were worn by Etruscan rulers as symbols of strength the green leaves surviving through the bitter cold of winter. They symbolise the harvest, and winners are often seen to wear them, but they are best known as a sign of welcome to Christmas visitors. Traditionalists will nail their wreath to the door on the first Sunday in Advent. Most of us would declare that too early. They might look a bit moth-eaten by Christmas Eve. In domestic terms, we can thank the Lutheran Church for the Advent wreath, from its first appearance in Germany in the 16th century. True Advent wreaths contain four candles, with another, the Christ candle, at the centre, this last one being lit on Christmas Day. The Christian meaning is to celebrate the coming of Christ, and the idea of using evergreens is to represent everlasting life. My personal rule is to imagine the wreath as a hat. If it would look fine on the head of a Morris dancer, a mummer or a druid, then I'm happy. More suited to the head of a race at Ascot or a reveller at an office party, it's a definite no. Favourite ingredients of mine for a wreath include for the base, Nordman or Douglas fir, moss, holly, lichen and heather. To decorate, fir cones, beech leaves, bay leaves, honesty, rosemary, feathers. To finish, cassia bark, dried poppy heads, stars of anise niece, Birch bark, moss, old man's beard, white or blue-black berries, hawthorn berries, crabapples, holly berries. The occasional slice of dried orange can look good, as can whole dried fruits, but they do bring a rather commercial look to the occasion. One of the most charming ideas in recent years was that of Petersham Nurseries, who used tiny red apples against a ring of glaucus leaves. By the way. I'm not sure what sort of person nicks a Christmas wreath from someone's door, but in my experience they do. I like to leave a very sharp piece of wire well hidden, so at least I have the comfort of knowing that there is a chance of the thief drawing blood as they yank my
1: handmade treasure from its hook. This is not, of course, a recommendation. The Bonhomie of Sharing a Pie We have
0: several people for dinner tonight, and I fancy bringing a pie to the table. I could do my usual quick chicken and leek version, the one in Kitchen Diaries Volume 2, but I feel something more festive is called for, a bit of rolled-up-sleeves cooking. The butcher has a mass of little birds, oven-ready and not too expensive on display. I decide to push the boat out and make the mother-of-all Christmas pies, a sort of festive sausage roll served as a generously filled circular pie with pieces of partridge breast tucked among the well-seasoned stuffing. It is simpler than I've made it sound. There is a bit of work to be done here, but not as much as it first appears. It takes me just over an hour to get this beauty in the oven. To get a crisp bottom, make the pie on the removable base of a steel tart tin and bake on a preheated baking sheet. The bones from the little birds can be browned and simmered with bay leaves and onion, then used as a stock, with their leg meat and some pearl barley or small pasta such as Orzo, to make a light but sustaining broth. The pie is jolly good eaten
1: cold too, like a pork pie, in which case I would unscrew the lids on the pickles. Decorating the cake You could taste the icing even before you came downstairs. The powdered
0: sugar hung in the air, wafting ghost-like into every room settling in a sweet veil on every piece of furniture. Even the dog tasted like a bonbon. I sat, head on hands for hours, watching my mother decorate the cake. She struggled to get the texture thick enough to make the necessary waves. Too thin, and the peaks collapsed. Too stiff, and the curls of snow break, looking as if Santa's sleigh has flown too low and flattened the lot. The snowdrift effect is made by dabbing at the surface of the iced cake with a blunt-ended knife. One of the knives with yellowing bone handles we inherited from my gran does the job perfectly, having the correct width and soft edges. Mum made the snow scene with a flourish of someone who has done it all her married life. I watched intently, looking out for the best wave, by which I mean the highest and the most perfectly formed. To a nine-year-old this means the Matterhorn rather than the Mulvans. Our cake was always wrapped in a wide red and white ribbon, made from thick paper with heavily frilled edges, which cuddled the cake like a roll-neck sweater. It came with a bit of last year's icing stuck to the fringe. The extravagance of the ribbon comes as a blessing, instantly disguising the less than perfect sides. The top with its pure white drifts of Tate and Lyle loveliness, had, for years, been adorned with a trio of pointed bottle brush trees, their green spines dusted with paint. A short, fat gnome, a curious-looking creature, neither Santa nor Elf, with a lump of icing impacted on the base. Finally, the job is signed off with a piece of gold plastic, shaped like one side of a sleigh, bearing the legend, Merry Christmas the S having been snapped off one year in a moment of overexcitement as the cake was sliced. There may have been a red and white spotted mushroom too, but I'm not quite sure what the highly poisonous flyer Garrick has to do with Christmas. I was eight, and with a deep sigh, Mum was handing the cake decorating over to me. It came after years of whining, please can I have a go? Finally, weary from the whole kerfuffle of Christmas, Mum wiped her hands on her thin, flowery apron she always wore in the kitchen. I've had enough of this, dear. You do it. That was to be our last Christmas doing the cake together. The final time we peeled off the brown paper that protected the cake from burning as it baked. The last time I sat impatiently waiting to press the little plaster Santa into the snow. The final time we would taste the icing sugar air on our tongues. Mum... The air tastes like sherbet. Come to think of it, that would be our last Christmas. A Christmas cake should have a touch of fairy tale magic to it. Unlike the dark brown pudding or the pale pastry case of the mince pie, the cake can be as much Hans Christian Andersen as you like. The cake is a thing of wonder, a little piece of fantasy, whose decorations bring the same sort of childlike delight as a shaken snow globe. I rally against tasteful cakes, designer cakes and will have no truck with any type of healthy cake. The decoration of my own cake, the one I make every year, has always been my take on Mum's snowdrift style, although some years it more resembles a choppy sea. I make the icing with golden icing sugar, giving it the colour of old parchment and the flavour of butterscotch rather than a simple hit of sugar. No one eats the icing, of course, its sole purpose being to prevent the cake from drying out, and I suppose
1: to take me back to one of the happiest moments of my childhood. Embellishing the cake. I rather like the idea of a
0: cake tastefully draped in a layer of perfectly smooth marzipan, unsullied by plastic reindeer and resting like a pristine white duvet over a dense, dark cake. In reality, the paste is never quite smooth enough and the cake looks at best unfinished, at worst, mean-spirited. Decoration of some sort is, I'm afraid, non-negotiable. There are many possibilities
1: there are cooks, but I offer a few thoughts here. The minimalist. Use colored almond pastes in shades of
0: walnut, caramel, or hazelnut. Brush off any loose icing sugar with a dry brush, otherwise your cake will look like it needs dusting. Tie a light, wide ribbon over the cake, with a generous bow on top. Stick to gold bronze and deep reds. The fabric will need to be crisp enough to stay put for a few days without sagging. Velvet is out of the question. Stiffly starched netting will work, as will some of the wider lace ribbons if you spray them with starch. A deep burgundy ribbon would look gorgeous on a caramel-coloured cake. Could I recommend Vivi Rouleau, the ribbon shop in London's Marylebone, a veritable cornucopia of
1: ribbon and braids for the well-dressed cake? The Almond Cobble Cake There is much delight to be had in the simplicity of
0: a naked fruit cake, stripped of its almond paste or icing vetiment, its dark, gently domed surface encrusted with lovingly placed almonds. A toothsome and tempting cake, homely and old-fashioned, which carries with it the enduring happiness of holidays, picnics and long train journeys. For all its nakedness, tied with a wide, simple red ribbon, such a cake is festive enough. Just make sure your almonds are placed with generosity and utter precision. Make sure all the nuts are perfect. Broken ones will look like a squirrel has been at work. Use ready skin nuts, it makes the job infinitely more straightforward. If not, soak the nuts for 10 minutes in boiling water, then remove the skins by pressing them individually between your thumb and forefinger. The white nut will pop out of its skin easily. If it doesn't, Leave it to soak a little longer. Dry the nuts on a tea towel. Toast the skinned almonds in a shallow pan over a moderate heat until evenly golden brown. The nuts will, somewhat annoyingly, brown only in one place, so you must move them almost continually around the pan to avoid little black patches. It's a bore, though the homely smell of toasting almonds on a winter's night makes up for the time taken and the gentle swishing sound of nuts on Teflon it's faintly soporific. You then push the golden nuts into the marzipan to form a crunchy coat, a random arrangement, however time-efficient is likely to disappoint, resembling the one house on the terrace that someone has decided to pebble-dash. If the effect is to work at all, the nuts should be placed in soldierly rows, snugly abutting one another, going in ever-decreasing tightly-packed circles. It's a good look, providing protection for the marzipan and offering the crunch needed to balance the soft almond icing. P.S. Don't be tempted to mix your nuts, otherwise the effect will, despite your best efforts, look as if you were clearing
1: out last year's festive fruit bowl. The toasted hazelnut cake. A layer of shelled, evenly
0: toasted hazelnuts, pointed ends uppermost, is actually rather stunning, especially if you can find space for a lone Christmas tree either bottle brush or a real twig. I rather like icing the cake, then freckling it with whole roasted
1: hazelnuts and crystallised pears. The Crystallised Fruit Cake Crystallised fruits, thoughtfully
0: arranged on the surface, give a fairy tale effect to your cake and look enchanting in candlelight. They also have the advantage of being the quick alternative so you can finish the cake on Christmas Eve. The downside is the overdose of fruit, the cake itself being already chock-a-block with raisins and cherries. I suggest you do the job properly and take a trip out to the red-carpeted halls of Messrs. Fortnum and Mason, whose selection of glacé fruits is akin to a stage set from The Nutcracker. The Royal Academy opposite has lovely Christmas cards. You could treat yourself to a day out. Consider the tiny sugared pears, Carlsbad plums and clementines, Whole orange slices are the very devil to arrange, and even worse to cut. If your creation is to look magical, go for any fruits that are white, gold or palest pink. Avoid the green and red unless you're going for a Blackpool Illuminations look. The fact that each piece of the sticky fruit will stick to your knife as you
1: slice the cake is something you must live with, but dipping it into hot water between slices will help. The praline cake. Stand jagged pieces of praline into deep peaks of
0: snow-white icing. The colour needs careful attention. Try to remove the caramel from the heat once it is the shade of maple syrup. Add the toasted almonds and pour onto a lightly oiled baking sheet or piece of baking parchment and leave to set. Snap into large shards and stick them into the icing. A
1: few edible gold stars can be fun here too. The icing. What are we to do about icing?
0: Clearing the plates after slices of cake have been passed around leads to the inevitable pile of unwanted icing. Thick white strips of the stuff, like a pile of gum shields they wear in boxing matches. Icing the cake has become a token, a sort of inedible wrapping for the cake within. The truth is that no one save the odd sugar addict would go near your precious frosting. Perhaps
1: we need to make other arrangements. The snow scene. The icing must be thick. By which I mean
0: so thick a spoon can stand up in it. A consistency that involves mountain upon mountain of icing sugar. If the texture is not suitably stiff, your snowdrifts and peaks will slowly flatten until you have something resembling bodies buried in snow. The trick is to add the lemon juice and egg white a very little at a time. Once you've added too much... It would take boxes of the white powdered sugar to right the wrong. Believe me, I've been there, and at midnight. The snowy peak effect is achieved by dipping a round bladed knife into the deep surface of the icing and flipping it up into a little peak. You can go on for hours perfecting your style, replacing one peak with another until the icing starts to set. A word of icing wisdom. Don't be tempted to cover the cake with a tea towel, until the peaks have set. The weight of
1: even your lightest piece of spotless Irish linen is enough to flatten your perfect peaks. Greeting old friends. The sight of a cluster of dark green bottle-brush Christmas trees in differing sizes
0: still brings a lump to my throat. They decorated every Christmas cake of my childhood. The most welcome decorations, the ones that bring joy to everyone's heart, are surely those that come out year after year. The feeling of familiarity, of Christmas cakes past, and a certain continuity is comforting. Even the most chipped Santa receives a welcome like an old friend. The fact that your snowman has had the same brick of yellowing frosting attached since 1984 only seems to add to the fondness the family has for it. The cake decorations are the nearest some of us get to family heirlooms. There are, of course, those who insist on moulding their own decorations out of marzipan or modelling icing, painting them with edible colouring, with a certain fastidiousness. All thoroughly admirable, yet somehow strangely wrong, as if someone is trying a bit too hard. While we are marvelling at the latest masterwork of creativity, what we really want is that chipped Santa and a cheap bottle brush tree, that little piece of family history.
1: It's a Christmas cake not the Sistine Chapel. A word in praise of mulled wine. It is fashionable to
0: trash the very notion of mulled wine. The dissenters have a point. Most mulled wine is indeed quite horrid, bargain basement red, a squeeze of acidic, watery orange, more spices than a bowl of cheap potpourri. Most unforgivable of all are those recipes that involve clearing out the drinks cupboard, or made in a desperate, determined attempt to get everyone pissed as quickly as possible. Maybe we just have to admit that mulled wine is simply about having a good time, a drink with which to celebrate a jolly, frivolous occasion. Let's think of it as an end-of-term for grown-ups. Nothing more sophisticated than that. Hot, spiced wine comes into its own as something that will smell suitably festive, get everybody in a robustuous mood, and generally not the edge of things.
1: A nice, simple, spiced wine for serving hot. It's 6.30pm.
0: You're weaving your way through the crowd with their earmuffs and scarves, reindeer hats and woolen mittens, trying to get to the south end of the market, where women in white aprons are baking flatbreads with onions and ham. You manoeuvre your way past the huddles of office workers and students, shoppers and tourists clutching their steaming mugs. We're not talking paper cups here, but decorated china mugs, often dated and to be kept as souvenirs. The air is all ice and spice, chilly enough to need your scarf, yet warm with cinnamon and aniseed and the deep grapey notes of red wine that has been simmering in cauldrons with spirits and cloves. I have drunk Glog in Stockholm, Glühwein in Cologne, Glog in Oslo, and Gloggy in Helsinki, and all have the ability to turn a frozen tourist into the happiest man alive within five sips. It comes as no surprise that Glühwein translates as glow wine. The mixture of steaming red wine, warm cloves, cinnamon, allspice and star anise is the very essence of Christmas. I know a few other drinks that so accurately tell you the time of year in one sip. Recipes for mulled wine vary with country, city and tradition, but have much in common. We've been warming wine and spices since Roman times. There is a recipe from 1390 in the form of Curie, one of the earliest printed recipe books, which suggests grinding together cinnamon, ginger, galangal, cloves, long pepper, marjoram, cardamom and grains of paradise with red wine and sugar. Most modern recipes seem to include nutmeg, orange, lemon and an aniseed spice such as the suitably festive star anise or fennel seeds. Some gild the lily with a shot of whisky, vodka or rum. In theory, the mugs or glasses of warming punch are served with some sort of biscuit or bun, usually spiced with ginger or cardamom, but I've only ever seen them accompanied by hearty affair, such as creamy spatzel. Nothing short of a plate of tartiflette will warm the soul quite so effectively. My recipe for mulled wine owns more to glog than our own mulled wine. I do think a shot of spirit helps, but it must be a small one, otherwise you will end up adding too much sugar to take the rawness out. And now a recipe. Mulled wine. Enough for six Vodka, 200ml, cloves, 6, a cinnamon stick, 3 star anise, cardamom pods, 10, an orange, a lemon, fruity red wine, you'll need a 750ml bottle, and flaked almonds, just a handful. Pour the vodka into a jug, add the cloves, cinnamon, and star anise. Crack open the cardamom pods and add them, pods and all. Remove the peel from the orange in long strips, I should use a vegetable peeler, and add to the vodka, together with the strips of peel from half the lemon. Set the mixture aside overnight. The following day, strain the aromatics. I tend to keep the star anise and return them to the wine as I serve. Pour into a large stainless steel pan and add the wine, then warm slowly over a moderate heat. Don't. Whatever you do, let it boil. Toast the almonds in a dry frying pan and scatter them over the surface of each cup as you serve the wine. 22nd of December. A tureen or two. I make lists. Shopping lists. To-do lists. Christmas card and present lists. Lists long and short. Urgent lists and pipe dreams, and never more so than in the days that bookend Christmas. The one I write today is unusually long and detailed, a stream of consciousness that may or may not be followed. Either way, it is an aid memoir I feel I cannot live without. There is no point in reproducing it here, because a list is your own and pretty much useless to anyone else. As well as waste my time with handwritten lists, I do two brilliantly useful things today. A couple of cut-and-come-again terrines to last over the bank holiday, and a practice run for the pumpkin custards I am doing for the non-meat-eaters' lunch the day after tomorrow, which from now on I shall know as National Ban marie Day. A terrine has saved my life more than once at this time of year. A coarse pâté tucked away in the fridge is a host's life raft, a squirrel store, money in the bank. You cut a slice or two, make some toast, open a bottle of wine. Everyone's happy. Making a tureen, something rough-textured, crumbly and studded with nuts or fruit, is not a stone's throw away from making plum pudding. A capacious mixing bowl, some mint stuff, a few spices and nuts. A tureen feels festive, generous, congenial. The result is endlessly useful and can be brought out for lunch as a starter, or for a light evening meal when everyone says they don't want much to eat. The lying, of course. A homemade terrine will also make you look clever in a secret recipe sort of way, especially if you put your masterpiece on a wooden board with a dish
1: of vinegar-sharp pickles and toast from a decent loaf. Your guests will think you're Elizabeth David. Wrapping up Christmas For a shiki, is the art of wrapping objects up in cloth.
0: A beautiful bundle for you to carry home in lieu of a bag. It is how your washing comes back from the laundry in many hotels in Japan, and how they package your shopping in some of my favourite clothes shops. It is also how I'd like to wrap my Christmas presents. The abandonment of sticky tape and paper makes this a distinctly green way of dealing with the annual, last-minute palaver of gift wrapping. The soft cloths often of simple, inexpensive cotton, but sometimes of intricately patterned silk, are used year after year. Most of my dusters are rescued cheap furoshiki wrapping cloths. And another thing, it makes wrapping an awkward present as easy as tying a shoelace. I speak as someone who has, on more than one occasion, tried to wrap up a teapot. The art of furoshiki is ancient. It was originally how you kept your clothes separate from others at the sento, the communal public baths. Nowadays, you mostly get a wicker basket, and for centuries was used in place of carrier bags. After decades of decline, shops are reintroducing this way of wrapping purchases as a way to avoid using plastic bags. Green gifting, the idea of environmentally friendly gifts, wrapping paper and cards, is something I've inadvertently been doing for years, Surely I can't be alone in tenderly teasing the tape away from the paper when I unwrap a present for the purpose of reusing the paper, or of pressing the creases out with my hands and putting it away in a drawer for another occasion. That is why I tend to use paper that is not specifically for Christmas, in the hope that it will be used by the recipient to wrap someone else's birthday present. If nothing else, it brings a whole new meaning to pass the parcel. Much wrapping paper cannot be recycled. Glitter and foil being a nightmare for those at the recycling plant. So it makes sense to use paper or cloth that you can reuse. By which I mean heavy paper that doesn't tear easily. Thin, cheap wrapping paper is difficult to use again, often being torn in the excitement. I am already spotting the presence under the tree, whose covering is destined never to see the inside of the recycling bin. Each year... The United States produces four million tonnes of waste Christmas wrapping paper. A sobering thought. Tonight, I sit at the table wrapping everyone's presents. As always, I start the job in a wave of enthusiasm, pretty paper and ribbon, and end, exasperated and short of sticky tape. I'm completely honest. I'm not exactly the best present wrapper in the world, each parcel giving the appearance of having been done with my eyes closed. The trick is to allow enough time... It isn't easy on Christmas Eve, the cook's busiest day of the year, hence my early start. I have a healthy respect for exquisite wrapping paper, buying it even when I don't need any, just to have it there when I do need it. I do the same with cards, too, it's a thing. I delight in being given a meticulously wrapped gift, especially when the paper has been artfully secured without recourse to sticky tape, which, of course, brings me back to Furoshiki, and my plan for next year. 23rd of December, getting the blues. A wedge of blue, its veins running like a road map through the creamy curds. Something soft and giving, its tendency to roam held in place by a downy white robe. A firm-textured cheese with a hard rind for eating with a commis pear or a crisp, chilled apple. Christmas in this house is unthinkable without cheese. Life is too short to stand in the Christmas Eve cheese queue, so I shop early today instead. I'm not fond of cheese boards, those carefully considered collections of bits and pieces, something for everyone, the scattergun approach. I prefer cheese that will be brought to the table in one large piece, or even a whole small one, rather than cheese's answer to a box of quality street. I tend to go for quality over quantity. Three is enough, a blue vein cheese, a sheep's or goat's milk variety, and something firm and waxy-fleshed. As a kid, I looked forward to our annual slab of Danish blue, the only one we could get in the depths of the 1960s. It sat, pongy and mysteriously exotic, next to a new moon of scarlet-waxed edam and a block of cracker barrel, its red foil peeled back enticingly. I guess we move on. I don't go out with a definitive shopping list, only a vague idea that I want three cheeses. There are no rules. I simply buy a large piece of the three that are the most enticing on the day. There are hundreds of cheeses with which to grace the Christmas table, and the choice is yours – but it is the blues that are traditional. There's a reason for this. Several of the blue vein types reach their point of perfection during the winter. Maturing for several months allows bigger flavours to develop, making them good for eating now. Their slightly more powerful flavours seem appropriate in cold weather, just as mild and milky burrata and ricotta feel perfectly attuned to a summer's day. Blue vein cheeses also have an affection for walnuts, the autumn's harvest so good right now. The sweet wines we drink at this time of year, Masala, Madeira, Sherries and the Muscats, can be a rare treat with a piece of Stilton, for instance, and all work splendidly with a glass of champagne. I eat blue cheeses throughout the year. Crozier blue from Ireland, for instance, is very pleasing on a summer's day with a ripe peach or apricot. The more aggressive salty blues are not really for me. I go for the gentler types. So, perhaps a soft, pale-vein gorgonzola, a tight-textured Spanish blue such as the fig-leaf-wrapped picos or cabrales. Roquefort is my healing cheese, the one I head for when I've been in close proximity to someone with a cold, perhaps. And no, I haven't had a cold for a decade or more. That said, for the last few years my yuletide blue has been British. The character of each cheese, its flavours and texture, vary reassuringly with the season. Christmas, when they've been maturing for a while, their flavour is often a little more pungent, but never assertively so. To name names, Shropshire Blue, a gorgeous golden blue cheese, crumbly and big-flavoured. I am exceptionally fond of the version made by the cheesemakers at Cropwell Bishop. Harborne Blue, that rare thing, a blue goat's milk cheese made in Devon. It has a delightfully crumbly texture, a clean bite and mild sweet notes. Beanley, a delicately blued sheep's milk cheese, refreshing, deliciously salty, and perfect for eating with a ripe pear, which I tend to spread rather than eat in a lump. Devon Blue is buttery and rich and decidedly sweet, made from cow's milk. Cashel is perhaps the best known of the Irish cheeses. It was one of the first of a new wave of small-scale, farm-produced cheeses, moist, buttery yellow fruity and slightly spicy. Stichelton is a cow's milk cheese made with raw milk. It can be glorious. I find it varies more than most, according to the time of year and its maturity, a charming, even exciting quality for a cheese and endorsing the fact that these cheeses are handmade and allowed to do their own thing. Lanark Blue, a fine, complex Scottish ewe's milk cheese, beautifully made, whose flavours become more powerful in the run-up to the end of the year. The dairy stops milking in September, so a long-matured Christmas cheese has a stronger flavour than a summer one. Their late-season batches have been described as a bit of a kilt-lifter. Stilton. A well-made stilton can be a wonderful thing, especially for those who prefer a blue with a milder, creamier character. They are often the most delicate of the family. The cheese is produced in Colston Bassett... The smallest of the production centres are a
1: particular favourite of mine, possessing a sweet, nutty quality. Keeping your cheese. You can, despite what you've probably been told, keep your cheeses in the fridge.
0: That screaming noise you can hear as a thousand hysterical foodies throwing a hissy fit at that last sentence. The problem is that a fridge should be running at three degrees centigrade. Cheese really doesn't like to be stored any lower than 5 degrees centigrade, so a fridge is not ideal. However, you may find, as I do, that wrapped in waxed paper and kept in a lidded plastic box in the salad crisper, your cheeses keep in perfectly fine condition. Don't even think of using cling film, especially if you give them an hour or two out of the fridge in a cool place before you serve them. I leave mine still wrapped in their waxed paper
1: on a marble board in the larder. It's not a perfect solution, but it works. At the table. I serve my cheese on a rectangular willow tray lined with wax paper
0: or a rush mat. The blue's on a wavy-edged elm board. I keep them separate because no matter how hard you try, there's always someone who will use the blue cheese knife to slice a piece from the delicate snow-white goat's milk cheese. I offer simple biscuits, oat cakes and the like, but bread is strangely popular, even after dinner. At this point in the proceedings, I'm likely to prefer fruit, a pear, a russet apple, or some sweet and very cold grapes. A well-seeded biscuit, crunchy with poppy seeds and oats, is suitable for mild and
1: milky cheeses, but my preference for a blue is for something simpler. Trifle. There has to be trifle. Our layered confection of fruit, sponge cake, cream and
0: deep custard has come a long way since Hannah Glass's 18th century recipe, the one that included boiling calf's feet and heart's to extract the gelatin. I make mine without jelly, layering sponge with some sort of fruit, custard, either a classic recipe or newfangled with mascarpone and cream, and of course, whipped cream. As befits its name trifle should be adorned with frivolities like crystallised fruits, toasted almonds, sugared flowers, in keeping with the spirit of the recipe. Sometimes I make my own sponge, sometimes I don't. If I have time, it may be freckled with poppy seeds or nibs of candied peel. If I don't, the base of my trifle could be a shop-bought Madeira cake or some soft amaretti biscuits unwrapped from their pretty traditional tissue. My parents preferred Swiss roll. Summer trifles are the best, because you can use black currants, damsons, plums or gooseberries to introduce a layer of tart relief among all the custard and cream. In winter, the affair takes a turn for the sweeter, with a layer of stewed apple or sliced bananas. Today, I found some early forced rhubarb at the greengrocers, slim, tender and as pink as a fairy. It wouldn't feel like Christmas without trifle, but then... Trifle is something I'm capable of eating for breakfast. That said, I'm not making a vast bowl of it this year because there will be other, simple offerings too. There probably should be something crisp crowning the top. The trifles of the 17th century would have been decorated with sweetmeats such as sugared aniseeds and drage. Later versions had toasted almonds and then, a century later, the unspeakable silver balls. I like crystallised rose petals, or crushed praline on mine, something to bite amid the layers of pale softness. Whatever you choose should twinkle like jewels on a tiara. The classic, no-messing family favourite, sponge, jelly or not, custard and cream, is a crowd-pleaser. But I prefer something more contemporary and without the sugar overload of jam. It's worth remembering that people can be very fussy about trifle, possibly more so than any other dessert, I know those you throw a tantrum over the tiniest detail, and so they should. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Christmas Chronicles, a podcast from me, Nigel Slater. The Christmas Chronicles, notes, stories, and a hundred essential recipes for midwinter is available now in hardback, audio and ebook and published by Fourth Estate. Join me again in our next chapter as we delve further into the season. Then I share some more recipes and winter stories.